Namo tasa bhagavato harahato sama sambuddhasa Namo tasa bhagavato harahato sama sambuddhasa Namo tasa bhagavato harahato sama sambuddhasa Homage to the Buddha, the blessed, noble, and fully self-enlightened one. Uh, this evening, <clears throat> we have to uh, revise our hindrances. That's the normal thing. So for some, it is a revision, and for others, it might be uh, just um, an introduction. Uh, the Buddha uh, categorizes all our suffering into five different types. Okay. So it's all that to do with pleasure, desire. Um, um, all the problems we have with pleasure, desire, attachment, indulgence. Yeah? And all those problems we have with hate, aversion, fear, all those problems that we have, what my teacher used to call our two very good friends, dullness and lethargy. All those problems we have with restlessness, um, which is a bit of a catch-all really, but it also includes remorse, remorse or guilt, guilt, shame, that sort of area. And uh, sceptical doubt, sceptical doubt. So those are your five areas. and. Um, we have to know how to deal with them when they come up, see? Because in the discourse on how to establish this awareness, which leads to liberation, we have to know how they arise, how to undermine them, and how to stop them ever arising again. <laughs> and this is the hard work. This is, this is the work of our meditation. If we had no hindrances, well, you'd be there really, you'd, you know, just a couple of weeks meditation and you'd, you'd made it. It's the hindrances that uh, prevent us from uh, making insights. And they are also hindrances to concentration because, as you know, they just take us away from the object, they take us away from meditation. They, they set us up into a dream place or a sleepy place, see. So we have to know what to do and this is part of the skills of meditation. The other part we do tomorrow, which is developing the seven factors of enlightenment, that's the, that's the beautiful side. Yeah? Best to leave the best wine till last, you see. And uh, those also demand a certain skillfulness. But for most of us, it's this hard grind of dealing with <laughs> our, def our defilements. Defilements is another word that the Buddha uses. Kilesa, defilements of the mind. That's how it's translated, defilements. And he also has another word, anusaya, which means latent tendencies. So this comes close to our understanding of, of having things that are buried in our uh, psyche and which we don't know how much is down there until somebody presses the right button. or yeah, and, then, and then we realize just how angry we are. <clears throat> so 
we have this underlying base of unresolved problems. Yeah? And then they arise every so often dependent on circumstance, whichever makes them come, come out, you see, in all the daily life. See? But in meditation, uh, we're just letting the heart speak for itself. We're just sitting back and whatever comes up, that's what we've got to deal with. We don't choose to deal with any of these, defi- these um, hindrances. They just come up with themselves, the nirvana, the hindrances. So, as, as I'm sure many of you know, one retreat, you're sort of falling asleep all over the place, and the next week you're sort of a jumping bean, you can't step still. <laughs> the mind retreats, one day you're like that, no mind one day, one sitting you're falling asleep, the next sitting you can't stop still. So, there's no, there's no logic, there's no rationality of that sort in the heart, it has its own internal logic, which is completely illogical from the rational point of view. Because you're sitting here and there's, I mean, why am I feeling depressed? Well, why is this, why is this anxiety come up now when I'm trying to be peaceful and I'm fully liberated, see? <laughs> so, in a sense, once we step out of the system, once we put ourselves in a position where we just want to let the heart manifest its turbulences, then, of course, it it does all sorts and we've got to be ready we've got to know what to do okay so if we go through these then uh, uh, hopefully we'll remind ourselves of these skills or uh, pick up some new ones pick up some new ideas now what I've been saying all weekend is the power of the mind the thinking mind the imaginative mind because it's through the imaginative mind, the thinking mind, that these mental states develop okay, in meditation. They do it also in daily life. Huh? Everything that we've seen, everything that we that human beings have created from, from, from jet planes to vaccines, it all began in the mind. Huh? It all began there in the mind. All the horrors that we've uh, committed as, as humanity against humanity and, and dumb beasts and all that sort of stuff, that's all begun in the mind. So it's really beginning to realize the importance of uh, understanding what the mind does. By mind here I mean this imagination, this uh, thinking capacity, this rationality. Through our enlightenment, uh, the 18th century enlightenment, we've put a lot of faith in rationality, uh, in reason, in being able to sit and reason things out. And unfortunately what was misunderstood was that reason always depends on a premise. If the premise is wrong, then your reasoning uh, will lead you into trouble. So that's why we ended up with Nazism, Communism, and all the rest of it. And it's undermined a lot of our faith in rationalism, what it should have done. <laughs> that's why we have a postmodern idea of, you know, my reality is my own, and, and to help with yours. Well, <laughs> so, once we understand the power of the mind, the thinking mind, the imaginative mind, to create a world for us, and how it develops and and produces uh, and these mental states, then you know we're very wary of it. See, and one of the things that we have to do in meditation is to keep coming off the thinking mind and plunge into. That's Saidu Pandita's way of putting it: plunge into, to get into, to really feel. Uh, what's motivating it, which is coming from heart. In our uh, 
sitting practice, it's normally beginning from the heart, you see, normally beginning from the heart, and then it moves into these higher faculties of imagination and thought, and then it begins to churn itself. In daily life, of course, it can come the other way. So you're watching television or something, which is, you know, some uh, usual stuff about murder and, you know, divorce and argument. <laughs> it's all going in, and of course, you're responding to it. You're resonating with what's happening on the television screen. Every time you, you listen to the news and it's, and it's usual horror stuff, then you resonate with that. So in effect, that's coming the other way. It's coming from the mind into the heart, you see. Uh, but our problem in the meditation, the sitting, is usually coming from inside, uh, from memories, from unresolved um, turbulences in the mind. I much prefer the word, you know, turbulence. We have this word about blocks. And blocks block gives you the impression that that's it. It's blocked. There's no way you can get out of this. You know, it's, <laughs> it's stuck. It's like something in your throat. But uh, if you look at the mind as uh, an energy system, uh, just as we experience the weather, then you see sometimes it blows hot, blows cold, it storms, sometimes it's beautiful and peaceful, and so on. <clears throat> So the first, the first thing is all this stuff with desire. And remember that uh, deep down our aim is just to be happy, for heaven's sake. That's all we want. <laughs> just to be peaceful and happy, you see. And whenever we see something which is making us happy, see, then we, we hold on to it. We try to aggrandize it. And we might come to this, a, a deeper understanding later on in the week. Of course, we associate happiness, real happiness, with a mental state, with an emotional state. So when you say, I'm happy, what you're saying is, emotionally, I feel happy. My heart feels happy. Uh, I'm filled inside with a happy feeling. See? Now, that's the first thing we have to, in a sense, begin to disconnect from, you see? So that when happiness arises, and it's trying to look for an object to increase its happiness, okay? So there you are, see, happiness arises, and suddenly, there you are, with the, with the person you've been looking for all your life, on a dreamy island beneath coconut trees. <laughs> Love abounds, yeah? And then you're walking down the aisle, oh my goodness, it's all... <laughs> or it's just raw sex. Wonderful, see? And you wake up, oh my God. <laughs> so these feelings, you see, uh, coming from old des from desires of wanting of this lovely relationship and so on. See? And that's just arising. And now what, what's happening is that this is latching on to that and you're dreaming it, you see? So within the dream, it's real. Eh? When you're dreaming, it's real. This is a, this is a problem. When you wake up out of it, suddenly you realize you've been fooled. It's only a dream. God, it's only a dream. And then you get this depression and this feeling of, you know, I'll never find the person I, I can really love. And so uh, it's being able to recognize that we have to stop that, you see. And you go back into just the feeling of excitement or that, that desire, you see. And you, you're pulling out of it, okay? You're pulling out of it to make it an object. Okay. Just to go back to childhood, when we when it, when we're born, so so they tell us, uh, we experience the world 
without any depth. It's just, it's just um, a blank screen or a screen full of color and shape and movement and all that. And that's why they say that babies, they're always reaching out for those rattles and stuff in their pram. And what they're doing is they're creating distance. They're creating a third dimension. Is what, yeah, you've got to believe these people. Eh? <laughs> and slowly, uh, that, that young child, you see, the world begins to separate out. Before it was, it was them. They were in that bath of sensation. And this slowly pushing out of the world, you see. So that at some time, I don't know when it happens, maybe two or three years old, they're quite clear the world is out there and this is me. Hmm? And they're pretty clear that I'm a boy or a girl, see. Now, all we're doing is taking that process inward, you see. The world inside now has to be externalized. See, so you're pushing it away from yourself and you're looking at it. So whereas before I am happy, I am, uh, you know, in a state of excitement and I love this and I love that, you see. So you come off the mind, come off the mind and you're, you're sort of pulling away from this emotion. So that's your first stage, you see, making it an object. So it's just like this room, see. The room is outside us. This is now outside this consciousness. You've made it an object. Yeah? You're all nodding vigorously, so I presume. <laughs> yeah, you feel that it's there, you see. Now, that distance, you see, that distance is allowing us to actually create that knowledge that this is not me, not mine. See? It's not me, not mine. And when that's steadied, when I know that, then I can re-enter into it and begin to investigate it more closely. But I have to, first of all, establish that position, see, of objectivity within myself, yeah? And what I'm doing is, is I'm breaking a connection with it. I'm breaking an identity with it, right? This identity is telling me that this happiness is me. That's the problem. So long as I think that this emotional happiness is me, I'm going to be seeking what makes me happy in this emotional way. Okay, so at first you think you're losing something. So how the hell am I going to be ever happy in life now that I know this happiness is not me? <laughs> See, so you pull yourself out. So this is a this is an awful place to be because it's a it's an identity crisis. See, how am I ever going to be happy if I can't be this happiness that I feel? Okay, so one has to if there's some fear come up, some some anxiety around that. Oh, then you you go to that. You feel that. You see. See, don't let the anxiety throw you back into this happiness and back onto the beach. See? So you stay, maintain your position of objectivity. Hmm? And then as you, as you become clear about that, you see, then you re-enter the happiness, okay, to investigate it. And slowly becoming convinced that, in fact, this is just an, a form of energy. It's just, a, it's just, like, um, uh, just like a light or... Uh, just like a, a, a nice feeling, just as you might have an itch. Hmm? It's just a feeling, that's all it is. That's all there is in the body, a feeling. So the Buddha's word, you see, for this is Vedana. Vedana covers virtually everything we mean by a feeling. See? Both a sensation, when I say uh, I'm not feeling well, see? or I'm feeling really good, meaning physically good, and sometimes when you say I'm feeling unhappy, or I'm feeling sad, see? That's a mental state. So this word feeling comes very close to the Buddha's understanding 
And what it does is it tells us that everything we associate with in the body is just feeling, whether it's a raw sensation or some great form of delight. See? So when it comes to things that are around this area of happiness, you see, uh, we begin to realize that having identified with happiness as the purpose of my life, seeking happiness in the sensual world, and remember, when the Buddha means the sensual world, he means everything you're experiencing. Right? Having sought that happiness in the sensual world, of course, all my energy goes to make it real. So, if I know that I'm going to be really happy if I find the right person, off I go. See? Clubbing, doing all sorts, <laughs> looking for this right person, you see. And uh, uh, especially my dream world, you see, my dream world. So I come back and I recognize the power of this, of this desire, whatever it might be, a good job, money, fame, whatever's driving me. Okay, so by, by, by doing that, this begins, I, I'm disidentifying with it. I'm able to see for what it is, just a mental state. Okay, and then slowly it loses its energy. In losing its energy, that conditioning of seeking happiness in the sensual world is slowly being undermined, okay? So that's our process. Our process is to, when we see ourselves lost in a dream or a fantasy around the whole idea of happiness and pleasure, we stop the thinking. As we move back down to the breath, we connect with whatever is in, in the body, the heart area usually, and we stay with it and we wait for it to pass away, okay? And then, if there's nothing else comes up, you go back to the breath. If it pops up again, do the same thing. Over and over and over again, you see. That's the practice. Now, of course, when I, when I uh, sort of set, talk like this, people say, well, you mean there's not going to be any romance? There's not going to be any, <laughs> any uh, you know, there's no happiness in the world? Can't I, right? No, quite the opposite, you see. Now, it's not that the Buddha fell in love once he was liberated. Uh, in a sense, the, uh, the liberation, that level of liberation, when you're totally liberated, you're no longer attracted to those sensual, the sensual world, right? But that doesn't mean to say that these things don't have their place and don't have their time. What we don't want them to be is cloying. What we don't want them to be is overpowering, completely, you know, you know, rushing our lives towards a certain, a certain obsessive destiny whether it's to be rich, or whether it's to be uh, famous, and so on, see? So, when, for instance, uh, just talking about romance, just talking about a relationship, if one wants a relationship, one has to, one has to trust, you see, one has to trust that, that as we put that act of desire into the world, you see, as you will it, yeah, then it will manifest or it won't. But if it becomes obsessive, then it, it just becomes a... Um, an area of disappointment, of, a, of, of, a, of addiction. See? So it's the same if you say to yourself, well, you know, I, I want this sort of work in, 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 in the world. So you, you push out that, that act of will, and of course you're open to it, you look around for it, you see, but you're always open to the fact that it may not manifest, that's all. And therefore there's no big, huge disappointment or grief. It just becomes something that you put out there. See? Now, 
you might say, well, how that works. I'm sure you can all uh, look back into your life and you can see that once you've willed something, there's something quite magical about the interconnectedness of the world. The, the world seems to, the cosmos even, seems to make an effort to help you to manifest what you want. Correct? Not rigorously, please. <laughs> there's something about um, the, the interconnection of things. I mean, surely, I'm sure most of you have had the experience of, for instance, uh, wanting to know something and the very book turns up. Yeah? I mean, it's sort of magical. I'll give you one out of my own life where when I began this teaching, I really, really, really didn't want to do it. You know, my, <laughs> my, what I wanted to do was just find a hut somewhere and continue. But once I decided to live in Britain, it seemed impossible to do that because there wasn't the infrastructure. And uh, so I began teaching and it evolved to what it is now. But over the, the, uh, the crisis of it, it was actually the millennium, 2000, I went to meditate with uh, Adu Pandita's place in, uh, in, uh, in Rangoon, Yangon. And uh, this was in the back of my mind. I wasn't thinking about it. I just put it to the side, you know, as to uh, the question was open. I just laid it out there in front of the Buddha, you know. I just said, look, if this is, if this is what I have to do, then I'll do it. I don't particularly want to do it, but... Uh, uh, there's a call, people are asking me, so I just laid it out, as it were, see? And there it was, this book taken from the, you know, the Course of Miracles? Well, somebody had extracted all the stuff in the Course of Miracles about teaching. And it was this little thin book, and it was stuck in a huge library, and I happened to find it. <laughs> and by the end of reading this book, I knew I had to teach. There was no doubt at all in my mind. It was the strangest sort of thing. So, in a sense, there also has to be that trust in that once you put out a real act of will, uh, a real decision in yourself, that this is the way you want your life to go, uh, more often than not, it will go that way. See? But you, can't, you can't entirely depend on that uh, because you don't know what forces you know, are against you. you know. It's no good me uh, you know, wanting to become Prime Minister. <laughs> I've got there's got to be a sort of realism about the desire, you know, you have to test it, you have to be tested. But, in terms of the obsessiveness we have around desires, you see, we overcome them by coming off the dream world and sitting in the midst of that turbulence, that, that strong desire, the addiction. And the thing is that uh, our habits are the... The, the, the whole habit of, of clinging on to something, an attachment of having to have, must have, all that. Once you tackle the real tough nut, it all fades away because it's all one attitude. See? You don't have to go from this obsession to that obsession and then all the way down the line. If you hit the big one, they all begin to fade. See? And that's a bit of a blessing because you know, we'll be here for lifetimes trying to get rid of it. <laughs> so if you, if you go for the big one, you see, then everything begins to be undermined. And uh, what we're trying to do, and this is why the eating that we're doing here, the exercise around eating, is so important. What we're trying to discover is, how can I be with pleasure, with the joys of life, with a loving relationship, without this attachment? See? Without this obsessiveness, without this need. You see, 
And what we're doing is, we're not just breaking away from those things we're dependent on. By finding this position within ourselves of the objective observer, we're actually discovering a new identity. We're taking the identity out of the body with its sensations, out of the heart with its emotions, out of the mind with its thoughts, and very slowly we're beginning to identify with something which is much deeper within us, which is our Buddha nature. And the more you identify with that which knows, the more, the less you become needy for the world to give you happiness. Because you're finding your resting place in the one who knows, the Buddha within. See? And part of that process is to let go of the world as a place where we can find true happiness. Not to, uh, not to confuse these passing happinesses and joys and pleasures of life with real, sustainable, unchangeable, unalloyed, non-suffering, as the Buddha would have it. <laughs> That's his way of putting happiness. See, he prefers, he prefers to tell you what it isn't. So. <laughs> Rather, because as soon as you say, well, Nibbana's happiness, everybody thinks it's some sort of blissed out state. See? But it's not. Now, you know what it is, because when you're meditating in that state of the pure observer, you're actually it. But you may not have recognized it. You see? You may not have recognized the absolute peace and stillness that there is within the observer. You don't look as though you believe me. <laughs> so anyway, that's all to do with this business of uh, attachment and indulgence, addiction, compulsive behavior. Right? Uh, the next business, of course, is this area of uh, aversion. And of course, this is much the same. You find yourself in a, uh, in a dream world, you're hating people, you're chopping their heads off, all that sort of stuff. And then you just note, you know, anger, hatred, or you're full of sort of anxiety, worrying about this, worrying about that, you know. These days, people might be worried about financial problems, losing their jobs. I mean, it's, it's it's not a pleasant place to be in at the moment. And so you get these anxieties, you see, you note it, you come back. And as you go down to the breath, you feel, you get into those feelings. Okay, so this again is the other side of this attachment. It's the other side of this wrong identity. You see, and just by tackling the big one, you see where you feel most uh, aversion and where you feel most fear that you're undermining that whole attitude of being averse to the to the world, to people, of being afraid of it. Hmm? So it's the same. It's the same technique. Just coming off the dream. Feeling the fear. You know that book, Feel the Fear and Do It Anyway. So that's it. It's just feel the fear. See? Now, of course, in both of these cases, as it's true for all the other hindrances, you're also being aware of your relationship. So how when, uh, when something good comes up, we see the relationship of adult indulgence, wanting it, grabbing it. So when it comes to things like hatred, and, uh, well, hatred also... And, and cruelty, we want to indulge. Yeah, we don't like to. We don't like to um, to accept that. But you know, being hateful uh, can be very uh, satisfying. Being angry, you know, hurting somebody can can bring quite a bit of internal joy. 
<laughs> fear is different. You panic with fear. So remember that when fear comes up, you want to be you want to be aware of the fear of fear. There's your panic. Hmm? And so long as you can keep the two in mind, the two there within your observation, and just keep breathing in and out, wait for that fear of fear to go, you see, and the panic stops, then you're with fear. And the more we get used to the texture of fear, see, that's why it's so important to come into the body, off the mind, you get into the texture of fear, the feel of it, the nausea, the trembling of it, you know, and then you lose your fear of it. And then, of course, it's not fearful anymore. I mean, what's going to frighten us? <coughs> What, when we've lost our fear of fear, what can frighten us? See? But it's getting beyond that barrier, you see. And you do it always by sinking into feeling the fear. Yeah? So again, this is the Buddha's language, to feel feelings in feelings. That's the way he puts it, to feel, to know the body in the body, to know mental states in mental states. With all these dream factors, when you come back off the dream and you come into the body and you're feeling the right, there has to be a very clear decision that you're not going to go back there. See, if you don't, if it's a sort of semi-decision, especially with those things that we, we like to indulge, yeah, whether it's an averse thing or an indulgent thing, then there's that leakage of desire. See, And so you've come off something, you see, and you come away to noting, noting, uh, I don't know, um, uh, well, we'll go back to romance, you see. Then you come back, but actually there's a part of you that still wants to go there. See? You've not actually said no to this leakage. So there you are feeling a whoop, and off you go again, you see. <laughs> so it takes a moment of mind mindlessness. One, one milli, one nanosecond of mindlessness coming off the subject, and you're away. You see? So there has to be a clear recognition and acknowledgement. And as you turn away, there must be a decision. You don't want to go back there. See, and that stops that leakage of desire. See, that's important. So, if you find yourself in a sitting and you're constantly going back to this dream thing, right? It may be just restlessness. It may be just the power of that desire. But just see if you've made a real decision not to go back into that dream space. Okay. Uh, just passing over the third one, which is normally this dullness and lethargy. The next after that is restlessness, you see. Restlessness is sort of catch-all. And in a sense, you've got to be very patient. If the mind is constantly in a state of just agitation, agitation, you see, then you've just got to be patient, you see. It's just this energy in the mind. Um, and sometimes, you know, you think you're going mad, you see. And, and you are mad when you are mad. And so you just have to note, you know, restlessness, madness, and then just keep coming back to the breath. And if that's all you do, the whole sitting, the whole day, the whole week, that's the practice. So you don't think to yourself, well, I've sat here for 40 minutes just saying madness, madness, and trying to get back to my breath. It's absolutely useless, you see. No, it's not. That's the practice. If you note madness and you think, well, why not? Let's go mad. And off you go. That's bad. You should feel terrible. You should, feel, you should really feel guilty and horrible and drugs. You know, see? But... That's the practice. You keep coming off the mind, keep coming off the mind, you see, until, until that energy has exhausted itself. Because that's where the energy has gone. It's gone into the head. What can you do? Same with the body. If you feel tremendously restless and you, you really want to move, you see, 
Um, one thing you can do is to, is to just feel sensations from the top of the head going down to the feet and just keep going from the top downwards, you see. And that tends to calm the body a bit, see. But don't do it entirely for the purpose of uh, calming the body. Do it to see where restlessness is. Right? Did you ever feel restless at the end of your nose? Very difficult. See, it just doesn't happen. So you have to sort of come down the body, feel where you feel the restlessness, hang on a little bit, keep moving, you see. And that also stops the mind wandering too. And with that, there's this other business of guilt, shame, remorse. So, uh, again, these things have to be felt. And often it's because we've, um, we've left things undone. We might have hurt somebody and we've not apologized. It might be that somebody's hurt us and you've not told them, uh, you've not forgiven them. So those are processes that you can do in your sitting, you see. If you find, for instance, a lot of um, uh, guilt coming up over something you've done, you see, then stay with the guilt, you see. But then write yourself a note and say, well, when I leave, this is what I'll do. And that puts that to rest, at least for a while, yeah? <laughs> until you've put right what you did wrong. If there's a lot of hate and vengefulness over somebody who's hurt you, you see, then, you know, feel, feel it, feel it, feel it, you see, and then write yourself a note, see, that, you know, you'll approach the person when, when you leave. If, of course, the, the person is unapproachable, either, either because they're not to be found or, or they've died or something, then, of course, you, you have to, in a sense, do a little ritual for yourself, you see of writing a letter, doing something whereby you can externalize um, this problem. See, it helps, that's all. But eventually, it's actually coming into those feelings, you see, and resting with them. Uh, there's a whole load of stuff around that area which uh, I tend not to tackle until the end of the week. So if that stuff comes up and, and you find it difficult to handle, then, uh, you know, just, uh, just, come and, just come and see me. Then there's sceptical doubt. Now this is really pernicious in any, in any part of our lives. Pernicious doubt, uh, sceptical doubt, is that doubt which stops you doing something. That's what it does, it stops you doing something. So if you're, if you're applying for a job and there's this constant, well I don't know whether I can, maybe I shouldn't, I don't know whether I could, you see, before you've decided the job's gone. Eh? If you get into a relationship and you think, well maybe I go and live and maybe I'm not, I don't know whether I should, it's gone, <laughs> it's gone away, is it? And you, never, you, can't make, you can't commit yourself. That's what sceptical doubt does, you see. Now the fact that you've all come here and you're all meditating means that there can't be much sceptical doubt about meditation, you see. But it has its little ways, you know, like for instance, the main one that people suffer from, I think we all suffer from to some degree, is doubt about ourselves. Doubt as to whether we can make progress in this practice. Uh, every, you know, and you look around, everybody's sitting very, very still, and you think, well, they, you know, I can't sit still, like, even though everybody's looking at you saying, my God, you're sitting still. <laughs> but we have all this sort of doubt going on about ourselves. So when that sort of doubt comes up, you know, just remind yourself of the Buddhist teaching. It's a psychological, mm, not psychological, it's a spiritual imperative that everybody, all beings, will become liberated. All beings, it's a, it's a, it's a spiritual imperative because that's the way consciousness is moving. Right? Just because it's not moving fast enough for it doesn't mean that it's not moving. And often in our practice, we go through times when it's very dreary, 
like a desert where nothing seems to be happening, where we seem to be putting a lot of effort in and not getting any real results, see? So those are testing times, you just gotta keep going, see? Until, until you move through it. And uh, often it's caused by, you know, false expectation. Uh, I, you know, was once, uh, when I was in Birmingham, a man turned up to do some meditation at the center. And uh, he said when he first came on a retreat, this is going back a bit to the late 70s, um, he was going on a course, okay, it's a course, a meditation course, in which one achieved Nibbana. So he, he went to this course and he thought, you know, Saturday, Sunday, that's it, I'll have made it. <laughs> as, as the time rolled on, you know, and it came to the end, there was this, God, you know, I'm not, <laughs> it was sort of a realized, we didn't turn him off, he came back and did some more. But that's what we think. We think, oh, you know, if I keep doing this for a while, things will get so much better, you know, I'll be liberated and all this sort of stuff. But, of course, these expectations uh, eventually undermine our practice because they're not real. Uh, they're not real. So be careful about, saying, about uh, expecting something from the practice, you see. We have to have a certain faith that uh, there is purification going on. There is uh, wisdom slowly being formed. See? It's just as soon as you enter into that position of the observer, it has to happen. It can't not be happening. See? As soon as you're there taking that position of observing, of feeling things, of allowing things to manifest, you see, there must be some small change within our looking. It's like a like I said before, it's like like Chinese torture, you know, the drip, the drip torture. <laughs> and slowly there are little aha moments, you see, when it when finally the penny drops a bit, you see. It's very rare for somebody to have a sort of cosmic, uh, you know, opening where everything sort of bursts into light and one suddenly rises up in the air. It's very, <laughs> most times it's just this plodding, 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 and then, and then when you look back over time, you know, five, six, ten years, you say, oh, well, things have changed. Okay? So it's a, it's a slow process. The Buddha, the Buddha warned us, it's gradual. There's nothing, I know you hear in certain traditions the sudden the sudden enlightenment and the what is it? Sudden and gradual enlightenment, you know. But these these are misunderstandings because um, when an insight comes, of course it's sudden. An insight doesn't take time. You either see it or you don't see it. But to get there can be can be one hell of a journey. So it depends where you're standing. If you're standing in the insight, yes, it's sudden enlightenment. But if you're standing outside the insight, it's blooming gradual, right? So all those, all those arguments about sudden and gradual insight they seem to me to be a bit silly, really. Nobody here, I hope. Uh, no, no. <laughs> 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 to the Zen school. <laughs> uh, then there's, of course, doubt in the teaching, doubt in the, in the Buddha and all that. And, and really, that, that, uh, that again is undermined through the practice and through reading and through thinking about it and reflecting on the teaching and making sure that we understand uh, you know, what the Buddha's talking about. And, and uh, through our practice, it becomes, becomes realistic. And that's it, you see. So here, we're understanding all this business about, about defilements, about uh, mental states that are, that are difficult to work with. Yeah? Uh, and then, of course, there's doubt in the teacher. Heaven forbid. Yeah. I mean, so <laughs> And of course, that has to be tested because the, the teacher in Buddhism is only is only there to 
uh, to guide. You know, it's not a it's not a faith in the teacher in that guru sense. That would be really undermining the process. See, the Buddha himself, he, he couldn't handle that. Just before he died, there was a young monk who looked upon him mooningly. He sent him off to the forest. He's on his deathbed. This is when he's, you know, he saw that he'd got this wrong relationship with, no, the Buddha, you know, sent him off, get out. <laughs> so it's not that, it's not that sort of, uh, you know, the, this sort of, Whatever, a guru, whatever we mean by a guru relationship it's not meant to be that at all it's meant to be someone who is um, just giving instructions pointing to the moon as they say the Buddha points to the moon hmm? no, shouldn't be looking at the end of his finger yeah. so uh, sceptical doubt that's, um, that's something just to be aware of and again when you, when you go into it you see you may find it's just fear the fear of failure uh, fear of criticism. You know, usually it's some sort of fear down there which stops us making that commitment. Yeah. This often uh, comes up when I offer people uh, the opportunity to take refuges and precepts. See? Don't like it. Don't come up. Uh, it's the same, uh, uh, the distinction between, shall we say, a, um, a partnership and marriage. Somebody explained to me once it was the difference between bacon and eggs. You heard that. <laughs> see, egg, when it comes to eggs, the chicken gives of its egg, see, but the pig gives of its life. <laughs> so there is something about a marriage which is like you, it, it, it's a further giving of oneself. And it's, it's not surprising to me to find that often people who've been in a partnership for quite some time finally decide to get married, go through an actual ceremony of marriage. You see, I've done I've done that for a few people, and it's and it, it just points out that so long as it's just a partnership, see, there's always this clause <laughs> underneath which gets you out. But uh, the point of a marriage is a complete commitment to the other. You see, you know, like like we had this this lovely wedding. You see, in sickness, in health, for poor, for rich, see, it doesn't matter. You're committed to the person entirely. You see, and that of course is um, is a tr- is an act of compassion. You see. It's an act of um, complete giving of oneself to the other, you see. Of course, it works as long as the other is giving their complete self to you. <laughs> once, that, once that begins to separate, then you're stuck. So, uh, sceptical doubt, yeah? So be careful of that. Again, be careful of what the mind's doing, you see. Be aware of it. Uh, two things I haven't... Uh, well, one thing I've looked at is boredom. So remember, boredom comes under the heading of aversion, and it's important for us because the boredom comes up in the practice, you know. I mean, if you put it out in the ordinary world that you just spent a whole week trying to observe the breath, you see, they, they would probably think, well, you know, I can't think of anything more boring than watching my breath and feeling the breath arising and passing away. So when boredom comes, you see, remember, this is the product of indulgence okay so remember there are five five uh, negatives that come up there's an aftermath from indulgence and once you connect these two once you connect this then of course you tend to come off at least gross indulgence a gross dependency so there's addiction there's compulsive behavior there's frustration when you don't get it there's grief when you lose it you're always afraid of losing, so you take out an insurance policy. 
and boredom. Remember when the Buddha was fully liberated, for seven years Mara chased him with his three daughters. See? Sensual desire, sexual desire, and boredom. Interesting, eh? Now, of course, uh, what, what, the, what that story is telling us that there were still remnants in his mind for seven years of old habits, see? Of seeking happiness. But uh, Mara goes away, you see, slinking away, saying, The Buddha sees me. So even though there were still these, what's known as vasana, in the Buddha's mind, even after he was liberated, which took seven years to completely die out, eh? there were still these three things, you see. And boredom is there. So boredom is a state of aversion, right? Not wanting, seeking excitement. And that's what it tells you to do. It tells you to seek uh, divertisement. It tells you to seek excitement, you see. But what you do with boredom is, you, is repetition. See? You feel the boredom and you keep repeating what you're doing. So this is true for any, anything in life, whether you're trying to learn an instrument, uh, work at work where boredom arises, you see, because uh, you're doing the same thing day in and day out or whatever, you see. So you recognize the boredom and you just keep doing what you're doing, you see. You don't indulge the boredom. See? You don't seek... Uh, distraction all these things that we're talking about you know they all they all pertain to ordinary daily life you can't just do them when you come on the tree you have to it's, it's just constant it's terrible but there we are and then finally there's our two very good friends dullness and lethargy see or if you want to put a, a moral twist on them sloth <laughs> and torpor now, um, we have to make a distinction between tiredness, right, where the body needs rest, the mind needs rest, and this dullness and lethargy. So tomorrow, for instance, we get up a little, a little earlier, and uh, there may be still some remnants of tiredness from when you first came, because uh, everybody, virtually everybody, arrives on a retreat with some sleep imbalance. Either they are oversleeping, or they're undersleeping, they're not sleeping well, see? And it normally takes three or four days for that to slowly sort of iron itself out. So tomorrow, getting up a little earlier just pushes the system a bit, you know? But uh, we shall struggle. (laughs) And then uh, by the fourth day, uh, of course, there's massive energy and one wonders where it was all before. Now, how is it we have this conditioning of, of dullness and lethargy, see? So just consider how many times you have indulged in that subliminal state of sleep. Just, you know, hanging around at the weekend in bed on that lovely level where you're neither asleep nor awake, you know? Where you've you've taken a newspaper to bed or you're listening to the radio and you just keep wafting in and out into these pleasant states. (laughs) Yeah? How many times when you feel a bit depressed, a bit low, a bit down, you've just flung yourself onto the couch and just fallen asleep for a while? So, in other words, it's a way that we get rid of ourselves. It's a way that we can uh, annihilate ourselves. Of course, we wouldn't do it if we didn't think we are going to wake up. But it's a way that we keep pushing ourselves into this state of oblivion. And the reason why we do it is because there's no suffering there. There's no suffering in oblivion. Unfortunately, we'll wake up. What we hope is that on waking, all the troubles will have gone. 
you see? So it's actually a small, a small way in which we commit suicide. That's what we're doing, we're getting rid of the self. Every time we use sleep to annihilate ourselves, we're actually desiring non-becoming. So the Buddha points to three desires, sensual desire, the desire to become, and the desire not to become. So that is in us always, when it gets too heavy, a desire to escape. And one way we escape is fall asleep. You know? So what we're suffering from when we have this dullness in the mind, you know, like porridge, and the body feels as heavy as lead and all that, is the consequence of these indulgences. What do we do? We refuse to be annihilated. Absolutely, completely and utterly refuse. See? We use noting to keep ourselves awake. You can come up the body, up from your toes to the top of the head. Just keep the attention moving so there's energy being displaced into that looking, that process. And you're looking to see where is it that you feel this, this, uh, this heaviness. You, know, you, feel it, you feel it in your toes, you feel it in your knees. See, where is it? Huh? And, you, and if you keep coming upwards like that, it just keeps the energy coming up, you see. And you're able to stay awake within that state when it comes to uh, uh, the body feels great but the mind is just full of this heavy dullness like big fog or smog then just roam around it roam around it, feeling it, seeing it you see, and you might be surprised to find that you wake up like a bulb right in the middle of that fog huh? I'm sure you've all experienced that surely, of course you have so <laughs> why do I ask these questions so <laughs> And you wake up completely bright and alert in the middle of this, uh, of this dullness, in the middle of this, this, this awesome, awesome smog. And that just shows you that what's actually making us become the dullness is association with the dullness. It's an association, it's an identity with the feelings of lethargy. And the more you, the more you move around in it, the more you're pulling out of it, the more you're trying to... Uh, investigate the, the taste of it, the, the feel of it, huh? the texture of it, the more this, this knowing is awakening until eventually it wakes up completely and, and it's like you're there in the middle of this, in the middle of this smog, this, this, this heaviness. And it's a mental state. It's as, it's a, va it's as a, a valid a mental state as depression, anxiety, all these things that we have a no-no on, this is also a no-no. Right? It's, a, it's, it's an awful, awesome state to be in. So when you when you're get to, to that point, what you're allowing is this energy to dissipate. And it's an energy that's, that's like a whirlpool. It's drawing you down into the black hole. Huh? It's not these other energies that are swishing you out into, into galaxies. See? This is mirrored in nature. It's quite remarkable, really. So as soon as you feel yourself being washed down into this black hole, you know, make sure that you, you lift yourself up, keep awake, you see. And you can open your eyes, let the light in, you can stand up, you see, if it gets too much, and just gently leave the meditation hall, see? do some walking. I've walked for hours up and down with this stuff. <laughs> it used to, at one point, it used to last for 10 days, just up and down, up and down. One point I was doing my times table, I got as far as 17, going forwards and backwards. Can you imagine that? I knew the 17 times table, backwards. Not bad, you know. And that was just to keep myself awake. When I said this to uh, my teacher, Janica, he said, he said, that's very good, he said. 
better to think of the Dharma. <laughs> Spent all my time learning these timetables. So, just the effort of, of just staying above it, you know, that's all. I'm not so sure that was all that skillful. It would have been perhaps more skillful to, to do this investigation more. But it was just the effort to stay awake, to stay awake. So uh, there's a lot of it. All, all this stuff that we've talked about, unfortunately, there's the sort of mountains of it. But we struggle on, you see. We, we continue. So that really uh, covers um, all our negativity, really. Uh, you know, if I've missed it, then you can, uh, I think, if I've missed something, you'll be able to slot it into one of those five, okay? All those things to do around indulgence and pleasure, all those things to do around aversion and hatred and fear, all those things, all those feelings and stuff we have to do around dullness and lethargy, all the restlessness, the guilt, the shame, remorse, and finally skeptical doubt. See, that covers, that covers the whole range of stuff that we have to deal with. And uh, just to repeat our, our job, our job is to recognize it, to point to it, to know what it is, to know what to do about it so that we undermine them and eventually they stop altogether. So the Buddha is liberated from all that, he's liberated from that suffering. Doesn't, he does. Somebody who is fully liberated doesn't have these kilesa. He's they're gone. Yeah? Doesn't suffer from them anymore. So uh, the future looks bright. No? <laughs> I can only hope my words have been of some assistance. May you be liberated from all suffering by your acute and unrelenting practice, undermining these dreadful hindrances, sooner rather than later. That makes me feel good. <laughs> <laughs>